This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yeah. And NPR. Okay, so here's how I got to you. Okay. I have a, a former producer and now a good friend, Pat Walters. Oh, yeah. You know Pat. Yes. We corresponded and then he came to see me speak in San Francisco. Yes, and it was based on something he saw you talk about, which is why I'm now contacting you. Interesting. Okay. So, Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and today a story about a set of pictures. Pictures. Yeah, and a, a, a set of questions about those pictures regarding who gets to see the pictures, and who gets to decide who gets to see the pictures. Do we get to see the pictures? Well, that's kind of the question. So I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna answer that yet. Um, to, uh, but I, w- I should say that there are some moments in this story that get a little, what's the word? Heavy. Heavy. Yeah. So be forewarned. But we'll start with the picture taker. My name is Lindsay Adario, and I'm a photojournalist. She's been covering war for the last 15 years. I've done military embeds, infantry units, patrolling, going in house-to-house searches. She's worked in, well, everywhere. Sudan, Libya, Lebanon, Pakistan, a million places. She's been kidnapped twice. She's won a Pulitzer, a MacArthur, and she's been called one of the most influential photographers of the past 25 years. In any case, this particular story, can you set it up a little bit? Sure. Uh, So in December of 2009... She was taking pictures for Time magazine. She was in Afghanistan, Gazmir District, Helmand Province, stationed at a base in the middle of the desert. I was embedded with the medevac team, and their role is to go in and pick up injured troops out of uh, the theater of war. This is a small team of basically helicopter pilots, medics, doctors. Basically, whenever there's an injured soldier... These teams are called, whichever team is closest to the injured. We're talking like helicopter dropping into... Oh, yeah. I mean, this is fast. So Lindsay had been embedded with this team for a couple of days, and not much was happening. So you're just sitting around, reading magazines, and then rereading the same magazines. And one night, really late. I think I was lying in bed, and I was totally like, if I wasn't asleep, I was on the verge of sleep. When they, someone ran, was like, there's an alpha. Alpha is like... Alpha means the most gravely wounded. Like, you have seconds to get there. I mean, it's it's life or death. So she grabs two cameras, her helmet, body armor, runs out to the Blackhawk. I strap myself in, and we take off. And I think it was about a two-minute flight, which is so fast. And I remember I was shooting the fields as we flew in because I was trying to focus and see what I can see. Luckily, they had lent me a set of night vision goggles, which was really nice of the military because you can't see anything without them in the middle of the night because they are using night vision, so they don't ever turn on the light. So if you were to look through the camera directly, you would see nothing, just blackness. Nothing. So what you do for a photographer is you put the night vision 
goggles in front of the camera lens. So it looks green. It's fluorescent green. Does that mean that the picture you get is green? Yes. So they fly for two minutes through the pitch black, land the helicopter. She has no idea where. And everything is happening extremely fast. I'm trying to focus as I'm looking out the helicopter door. And suddenly in my viewfinder, I see a man sort of wrapped, I think he was wrapped in a blanket, and he's, uh, he gets put right in front of me on the floor of the, of the Black Hawk. The first thing I thought is, I think he's already dead. He seemed completely unresponsive, and he seemed so young. I just remember looking at his face and thinking, God, what are we doing here? Within seconds, they're airborne again, flying back to the field hospital. Lindsay takes pictures on that brief flight back. Grainy, fluorescent, green images of the medics tending to the soldier, checking his vitals. We land at the field hospital. They rushed him on a stretcher into the hospital tent. And the whole team of medics, Navy nurses, the anesthesiologist, everyone is there. They carry him inside and put him immediately on the table, uh, cut his clothes off. They're cutting his pants off, um, open up his shirt. And the room starts filling up with everyone because everyone has heard that there's an alpha. And so troops come in from across the base, sort of in support. She says within minutes, the room went from just a handful of people, five, six, to a dozen, 20. And it's, it, you can hear a pin drop. I mean, the room is silent except for the doctors. You know, they're trying to resuscitate him. He had lost, I think, eight or nine pints of blood. They're bringing in blood. They're bringing in all sorts of things. And um, I... Are you shooting this whole time? Well, yeah, of course. You know, I'm basically trying to be invisible because it's so sensitive to be a photographer in that situation. What I do, I don't shoot like bang, 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 bang. You know, I shoot one frame. And then I put my camera down and I shoot another frame because you can hear the click of the shutter and it is like exponentially louder than normal in a situation like that. What did you get? Did anyone look, give you a look of like back off? Well, at one point I was shooting for probably, I don't know, five or six minutes maybe. And an officer walked over to me and he said, hey, stop photographing. And yeah, and I put the camera down and I looked at him and I said, I have permission. She had worked all that out beforehand as part of the conditions of her embed. We had had all these conversations, you know, what happens in the case of this? What is my access? What can I do? But at this point, she says uh, the room was full of people from across the base who didn't know any of that, didn't know who she was, that she had permission. And so she was sort of at this fork in the road. There were those, like that officer who clearly felt... Put the camera down. Stop. Obviously, this is not the time to argue or to be disrespectful, so I didn't say anything else. I put the camera down. But she says the moment she did that... Several other troops said no. Let her shoot. This has to be documented. Oh, that's interesting. So you have one guy who says, you can't take a picture of this. Right. Almost like anything but this. Right. And then another guy is like, no, this especially. Right. Right. First of all, the guy who said no was being protective. It made perfect sense for me. But I think the guys who who stood up and said this has to be documented, I think at some point everyone realized, like, look, this war is not going away. We are losing so many lives and limbs, and, and no one is seeing it. And keep in mind, this is 2009. This is 
just the tail end of an 18-year ban where the news media couldn't even photograph military coffins. In any case, the officer let it go. Lindsay continued to take pictures for about another 20 minutes. She took pictures of the doctors cutting open the boy's chest, massaging his heart. At some point, I remember someone, one of the doctors looked up and said, does anyone else have any suggestions, basically, for how to save him? And everyone said no, and they sort of disconnected the, I mean, he died. People were looking down, and then they were looking at each other, and someone went to go get a flag, an American flag, to drape over his body. And I continued photographing. And there was a moment where uh, the whole room was silent and people stood around his body draped with a flag uh, and said a prayer. That, to me, is one of the most powerful images that came out of this whole series. There's this old idea in photography called the decisive moment, that the world is filled with these far-off realities, but every so often a photograph can capture a moment that, boom, takes you there. This is one of those photos. In the picture, you see all these men and women standing in kind of a loose semicircle. Some of them still have their uh, blue surgical gloves on. They look totally spent. They're all looking in different directions. And they all look like they're not even there. Like they're totally lost in their own thoughts. Their attention is clearly inwards. Yeah. I'm sure all those troops were like, God, that could have been me. Why couldn't we save him? What are we doing here in Afghanistan? Is this war worth it? And to read the expressions on their faces, like it's even you can be at war as a journalist, but never actually get to the heart of the war because we don't have access or people don't open up. And I felt like I really had reached like the crux of the war. Interesting. It was war. You'd seen an essence of something. Yeah. But then came a problem. Any photos that she had taken that included that soldier's face or any other identifying marks like tattoos, and he did have tattoos, according to the rules of her embed, she couldn't use those photos without the soldier's permission. Right. And you never got to speak to him. No. So was it days later, weeks later, months later, where you began to ask yourself, can I, no, who do I talk to? No, it was minutes later. Minutes I mean, later. It's, it's the military does not let a journalist cover something like this without coming directly to that person. And so literally, like, I followed uh, the young man's body out to the morgue, and they had to walk him outside. And I remember it was, the moon was so bright that night, and I was shooting with the moonlight as he was being carried outside. And then And uh, I went back to the tent where I was staying, and within minutes, uh, the military PAO, the Marines, uh, public affairs officers, came and said, uh, you know you can't send those images out without permission from the next of kin. That's the rule. If a soldier is unconscious and then dies before giving permission? I have to then go to the next of kin. And I said, of course, I understand. You know, I'm not doing anything with those photos in that moment. I signed this piece of paper. When I give my word, I keep that word, you know. But then the other side of me was like, fuck, you know, in Vietnam, no one was signing pieces of paper. And in Vietnam, no one had to, to, to go to the next of kin before they published anything. And that's why the American public, I think, rose up against the war in Vietnam, because they saw the most graphic, devastating images that were uncensored. So then what do you do in that circumstance? I mean, 
I okay. imagine you go to the next of kin, right? Well, you're not allowed as a journalist to reach out to the next of kin. They asked me, are you interested in being contacted by the next of kin if they're willing to speak to you? Oh, so you can't even actually no. call. No, they will not give you the information. Oh. But I said, um, you know, of course I would like to be contacted by the next of kin and please pass my information on. And I was sort of just waiting. I mean, at this point, were you thinking the pictures would ever see the light of day? I had no idea. And, um... A few days later... Maybe less than a week. Her in-bed was over. She was flying to JFK on her way to meet her family for Christmas. And I had voicemails on my telephone. And I listened, and it was his father. And he left me a voicemail, and he said, I understand you were with my son when he died, and I would like to talk to you, and this is my phone number. I sort of choked up just listening to his voice, anticipating how difficult that phone call would be. That phone call and all the fallout is coming up. My name is Lucina Basilico, and I'm calling from my office in Houston, Texas. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time, you like to relax every now and then, you like to feel totally chill, but your money. Your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. So Lindsay Adario, the photographer, has these photos, uh, these intense photos of a soldier dying, but she can't use them without getting permission from the next of kin. Right. A few days later? I had voicemails on my telephone, and I listened, and it was his father. His father's name is Todd Taylor. Son's name was Jonathan Taylor. And just to jump ahead for a second, as we were talking about the phone call and the fallout from that phone call, I had all of these questions about what Todd Taylor was thinking, and questions about his son, things that Lindsay couldn't possibly answer. So at a certain point in the interview, she just told me. I don't know. I mean, you could maybe interview him. Do you think he would, I mean, is that, is that well, is there any prohibition on me talking to him? Well, I'd be happy to give you some information. Yeah, I'd love yeah, to talk to I, him. I mean, you can try. Lindsay uh, put us in touch, and I'll just tell you about the visit for a second. Todd Taylor was willing to talk. He had two conditions. 
One was like, if I'm going to do a story about these photos of his son, I should at least get to know his son a little bit. And the second was that I come down to Florida to meet him and his family personally. The destination is on your left. So I did. Hey, good morning. How are you? The Taylor family live in a section of Jacksonville that's near a naval base, so there are a lot of military families there. You come on in and meet all the doggies. Todd is actually ex-Navy himself. He introduced me to his three giant boxers. No jumping. Or they sort of introduced themselves. And then... This is my daughter, my youngest. That's me. I met his daughters. I am Lauren Taylor. I am 16 going on 17. Oh, God. You had to add that in. <laughs> my name is Mackenzie Taylor. I am Jonathan's other sister, and I'm 20 years old. That little voice you heard in the background is Easton. He's about two. That's one of the babies she watches. Hey, handsome. Mackenzie works as a nanny. My name's Paige Larson. I'm Jonathan's stepsister, and I'm 21. My name's Sue Taylor, and I'm um, Jonathan's stepmom. And then, of course, I'm Todd Taylor. I'm Jonathan's dad. Um, we're here in my house in Jacksonville, Florida, and today is Jonathan's birthday. It's April 8th. 2015. So he would have been how old today? 28 years old today. 28. When I got there, they pulled out photo albums of Jonathan, and we all sat at the kitchen table. And looked at pictures. Right there. Oh. Pictures of him as a baby. Of course, that was very young. Toddler. This was on the Disney cruise. I took him on. Adolescent. Kennedy Space Center. Teenager. You see him running track. He liked cross country. Going to prom. That was Jonathan's girlfriend. The thing you notice immediately in all the pictures. Yeah, big blue eyes. Mm-hmm. He's got these eyes that are not just blue, they're really blue. Like if you boosted the brightness in Photoshop or something. Yeah, that's, I forgot. I think we're on vacation here, but... The other thing you notice... Mm-hmm. His facial expressions are really yeah, funny in some a, of these. He was a big class clown. A lot of goofy faces. Very goofy. Oh, big goofball. Yeah. goofball. yeah, definitely knew how to make anybody laugh. Full of energy, always into stuff. He kept the boys away, too. <laughs> definitely, most definitely. He made sure if I had boyfriends, he'd call them just to see what grades they had. Really? He would check on their grades? Yeah, kind of give them a little interview. I do remember he was very protective. If I had a crush, he'd be like, oh, no, you're not going to have a crush. No, no boys. There was one time before he left for Afghanistan, like, I really sick with a fever. And I remember him holding my hand just so he could make sure that I was okay and, and took care of me. They told me story after story about how he doted on his sisters, how he loved to read and wanted to become a history teacher after his four years in the Marines. And inevitably, the conversation turned to the day that they found out he died, December 1st, 2009. They get a call from Jonathan's mom um, saying, it's that classic scene, oh my God, there are two Marines at the door. And we just kind of like like left everything. Sue, Todd, the girls jump in the car, race over. They all wanted to get out. We're like, no, because we didn't really know what was going to happen. So we made all the girls stay in the car. And I remember walking in the door and everyone just had this look on their face like the world had just ended. And, um... I remember asking what had happened. And my mom had told me that he was gone. And the first thing I did was run to his room because everything was the same before he had left. I remember opening his closet and um, grabbing one of his shirts and just holding on to it because it still had his scent on it. That night was really hard. One thing that had never occurred to me, 
totally caught me off guard in, in thinking about those pictures is that when those Marines came to the door and told them the news, well, they didn't actually give much news. This right here was one of, this is what was read. Todd actually read me the circumstances of death statement. Hostile action result of multiple traumatic injuries received as a member of a dismounted patrol that was struck by an ID while conducting combat operations in the Helmand province. That was it, on patrol, night patrol. That was all I had. So and you didn't know anything? That's it. Jonathan's unit was still in Afghanistan, so he couldn't talk to anyone. He had no clue what happened to his son. So when that casualty assistance officer told him, actually, there was a photographer in the room with your son when he died. Automatically, I was like, I wanted to, wanted to call her. Earlier in my conversation with Lindsay, I'd asked her, what do you remember of the call? So the call, um, I went to my mother's house in Connecticut, and I asked my mother to be left alone, which in a big Italian-American family means <laughs> it does not happen it's very not often. It's not a small request. No, she sort of looked at me like, what? And I, I went up into the guest bedroom, and I called him. And he picked up. I think he thanked me for calling him. I don't remember exactly what we said, but I said, you know, I was with your son when he died, and I will give you as much or as little information as you want. And he said, I want to know everything. Because I wasn't there. I was here. He said, I want to know every single thing. I want to be with my son. Just to lose him and not be there for him, that's, that was hard, really hard. And I felt sort of very awkward because I felt like, you know, why was I privy to this moment? Um, and he, as the father, could not be privy. The most important question to me was, did he suffer? Do you think did he suffer? I said, no. She told me, Miss Taylor, I don't, I don't think he suffered. I think he was in shock. I told him everything. How much blood his son lost? Uh, how long did they try to save him? And at some point, I said, look, I have these pictures. I have all of these pictures. I shot everything. And I need your permission to publish the ones that show his face. Oh, yeah. She asked me for permission. And uh, he was quiet. I said, um, I told her yes, but... But he said, I, I, can I see them? And I wanted to see them first. Before I give permission, I want to see every photo. And I said, you know, I'm not sure you want to see these photos because they're graphic. But he wanted to see the outtake. He wanted to see every photo. All of them. Yeah. Of course, I, we were on the phone. I couldn't show him pictures. And legally, I needed permission from Time Magazine to show him anything because, you know, as a journalist, you can't show anything to anyone until it's published. You don't show people pictures of journalism before you publish them. This is one of those cardinal rules that's drilled into every journalist's head. If you show a subject the raw stuff before it's out there, you're kind of giving up the only independence you've got. That's why she says ordinarily. I would never, ever, ever show. Just to play it out for a second, if he, to be cynical about it, if you show him the pictures, he might take away permission that he might have otherwise yes, give you. exactly. Exactly. You can say as a publication, no, I won't show you those pictures before you have to just say yes or no. Do you give your permission? Like, it, in a way, if you get down to it, I feel like one of the fundamental layers here is just like a question of whose rights when it comes to that information is more important. I could hear an argument that says the battle is important. It was authorized by public figures. It is carrying America's message into the world, and shouldn't Americans see what goes on? 
Yeah, but I could, I could hear an argument that says, shouldn't a dad be able to protect who sees his son in that situation? Yeah. In any case, Lindsay called her editors at Time. They had a series of conversations that went all the way up to the editor of Time. We had a very intense conversation, and we collectively made a decision to show him the photos. To say that decision was unusual from their perspective would be severely understating it. When I first got these um, from FedEx, I knew they were coming, and I was actually scared to look at him and I saw my son there and I just kept looking and, and looking you can see these were the in the medevac when they got him on you can see the night vision lens there's Jonathan's body oh, chest there's his face there's the oxygen still has watch on still see his eyes closed there that was yeah so many hands in there working. You can see they're doing CPR there. Now, here you see, right leg is really mangled and broken. That's really why he lost so much blood. It was just all right in here. Some of these pictures well, are... Well, there's some of them that are... Really hard to see. Yeah. But even though they show the ugliness of war, I've got a piece of Jonathan... This is, is my treasure. Mm. And I'll show you one of the pictures that, to me, it's, it always stands out. He brought up the picture of the prayer. All those people standing in a semicircle with faraway eyes. Right here. You just see a little different in their faces here. I mean, it meant something. He was somebody. Yeah. He wasn't just a number. Todd said he wanted people to see this picture and the others. To convey what's happening over there. This is going on every day. And he says for him, it's not a political thing. You can feel however you want to feel about the wars we're in. For him, it's about people seeing what is actually happening. I mean, I wanted to let people see the sacrifices that these boys do. It took Todd and his family over a month to decide what to do about those pictures. Whether to grant time permission to run the photos or not. He says ultimately he called Jonathan's mother over. Her and her husband. And um, my wife and I, we all discussed it. And ultimately, he said no. And it was a lot of back and forth. He said no to showing any pictures at all. Well, he can't say no to any pictures because... Oh, because there's pictures without the face. Yeah. Exactly. He said no to any pictures with the face or identifying marks. We decided really that uh, we didn't want these pictures to get out um, for fear that his sisters somehow they would get back to them. And that was the big thing. I didn't want them to be able to see this yet. As their dad, I want to protect them from seeing certain things. And so we decided not to do it. Time had planned to run a whole photo spread on the medevac team trying to save Jonathan Taylor's life. But since they now couldn't use most of those photos, they had to make the photo spread more general. What had been the basically the death of a soldier ultimately became a photo essay on the medevac team. And those pictures were maybe two pictures or three pictures in that spread, but they were not the focus. The prayer photo is in the new spread because in that photo... Uh, you can't see his body because it's covered with a flag. There are no identifying marks. But somehow in that context, 
it's it's not got the same impact, weirdly. Because you're seeing the after without the before? It, exactly. And, and you know, um, let's see here. Todd but. showed me the original photo spread because they had sent that to him. You know? Again, super unusual. So this is the, um, this is the feature they wanted to do. Yeah. You can see the pictures are so much more clearer. This is kind of the layout it's going to be. They call it 29 minutes, graphing it out. Minute by minute. This whole process. So there you see all the before pictures that lead up to the prayer. And what it seemed to me is like if you don't see all that stuff, the, the, the wounds and the blood and the tenderness as they tried to comfort him and then the emptiness they feel when they couldn't save him. Like if you don't see all that, you're not really standing with them in that prayer at the end. You're still seeing them across the space. Yeah, that's interesting. In the original spread, you are there in that room. And they did a, they did a great job, mm-hmm. you know. It's really powerful. And I couldn't help but think that, like, maybe this would have created that conversation that Lindsay talked about just a tiny bit. And, like, how weird that I'm one of the only people to see it. And to know that, like, I, the only reason I can describe it to you is because I'm on the radio. You know, I will always feel like, journalistically, we we sacrifice. you know, we did not tell the story as powerfully as we could have, but we had integrity, and I feel like we treated everyone with respect, and we kept our word. Lindsay and Todd now stay in touch over email once or twice a year. And in terms of keeping your word, Todd has made a deal with his daughters that they can see the pictures when they turn 21. But interestingly, um, the three of them don't agree as to whether they want to. Uh, Paige and Mackenzie, who are about to turn 21, say they don't want to see the pictures. I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Do you feel the same? Yeah, I think for me, I just don't want to see him in pain, you know? That's Mackenzie. Yeah, my thing is I just don't want to see it because I'd rather just remember him in one piece how he was. I'm just too sensitive. That's Paige. Now Lauren, the youngest, for me, she says she needs to see those pictures. Because I want to know what he went through, and I like constantly knowing things, and I don't like things being kept from me. And I just want to, I guess I just want a visual of... She says she knows he's gone, but she still somehow needs proof. Mm -hmm. Not that it happened, she knows it happened. But so it feels real. Okay, so um, big thanks to Pat Walters, um, Kira Pollock, the Taylor family, and of course, Lindsay Adario. She has a book out now called It's What I Do, which is sort of a memoir about her war photography and how it's changed her life. And uh, that book is filled with her photography. Anything like the ones we didn't see? Well, there's some amazing pictures in there, but nothing like like these ones. Hmm. So yeah, that's it. Um, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening.